Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And with this episode, I am concluding my examination of the Duffer Brothers' Stranger Things, which premiered this summer on Netflix. So for those of you who are tuning into the Stephen King cast for the very first time, welcome. Welcome to the Stephen King cast. You might be a little bit confused why, um, if you're listening to something called the Stephen King cast, uh, why I'm reviewing Stranger Things. But if you have watched Stranger Things, you'll see that it's a show that was um, uh, conceptualized based on previously existing just Stephen King work. And just the, the works of Stephen King have influenced the Duffer Brothers. So um, I, I, I definitely, it's something that I felt that I needed to do because I enjoyed it so much and I kind of don't want to let it go. So the more I talk about it, the more it stays alive and in my mind and my heart. And um, because it is so drenched in, in, uh, in Stephen King, full of Stephen Kingisms, that I, uh, I definitely want to do it. So this is the final episode. And if you want to go back, um, the entirety of the Stephen King cast is... It's available for free on iTunes and SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the Podbean site. So feel free to head on over and, and just, I, I would start from the beginning. If this is your first episode, start from the very first episode, Carrie, and then uh, follow me on my journey as I make my way through Stephen King's works. So for those of you who have been listening, long-time listeners, welcome back, guys. Can't do it without you. Um, you know the drill. This is how I'm going to start off. I'm going to shamelessly plug my own work, but after I corral my dog who's walking through the kitchen, who should not be in the kitchen right now, um, for those of you who just listened to episode seven, um, I had to take a little bit of a break because my daughter woke up um, and now I have her strapped to my chest um, in, in a little carrier and she's recording with me. There she is. And uh, the dogs, I need to keep my eye on the dogs as well. Um, so I don't know how, how long I have before she gets bored. Um, because uh, this can't be fun for her. Uh, but I'm going to try and get through this episode so that I can, she and I can have a nice fun day Sunday, Sunday fun day um, with the dogs. But in the meantime, one of these guys should not be in the kitchen and I need to put him back in the living room. So hold on one second. Okay, so what I'm going to do first, I'm going to shamelessly plug some of my own work. For those of you who don't know, um, I've been fortunate enough to have some of my own short stories published. Um, so I'm going to rattle off some of the short stories and the publications that you can find them all, which you can find on Amazon. And uh, I'd recommend that you uh, give these a shot because, you know, if you're listening to something called the Stephen King cast, clearly my writing is informed by a certain individual. And um, I think that if you enjoy Stephen King, that you'll definitely uh, enjoy these stories. The, the most recent um, is The Portrait, which uh, is going to be coming out on Tuesday the 27th in the... Uh, Skeptics. No, I'm sorry. Um, I, I totally screwed that up. Um, the portrait is available right now, and that is in uh, Skeptics Must Die. So you can do a search for that uh, and have it shipped to you. Um, the portrait involves two uh, bumbling uh, ghost hunters who want uh, reality television fame, and they uh, do uh, they, as they're looking into a paranormal investigation. It's uh, they kind of get in a little bit over their heads. And uh, the most recent was uh, from the um, Ink Stains anthology. That is Spouse Swab. I'm sorry, guys. That that clanging that you heard that was one of that was my other dog um, raging against the imprisonment of the living room by uh, scrabbling all over the the baby gate. Um, so. 
both dogs are now outside. So it's just me and the kid. And I was talking about Spouse Swap, which can be found in the pages of Ink Stains. Um, I think that you guys will enjoy that one. Uh, I just received in the mail the other week Forget Me Not in the Trists of Fate publication. Forget Me Not is a existential horror examination of what happens to our identity when we are in a relationship. You can also seek out and find Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales, which includes my story Hopscotch, uh, in which a 13-year-old girl who's a brat um, is a brat to the wrong person and pays for it. This world will eat you away all the way up in the pages of Nine Tales Told in the Dark. Number nine follows the story of two college friends who embark on a disastrous road trip. And then uh, the first one to be published was Room 207, found in the pages of Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, in which a man um, on uh, a road trip to, uh, to, uh, to, to meet up with his wife for a funeral stays at the wrong motel. Uh, so I think that you'll enjoy all of those guys. Um, so you can just do an Amazon search for any of those uh, publication titles, and they'll pop up. So give them a shot. Okay, up next, I want to read a listener email because longtime listeners will know that I can't do this without you. Um, so I love uh, just uh, interacting with you guys. So keep those emails coming. We have Gabe. Gabe writes, Dear Constant Reader, Sorry, I've written you a few times, but I keep thinking of things I want to ask you. And every time I listen to a new episode of your podcast, it feels like resuming a great continuing conversation. I noticed that when you discussed The Gunslinger, you dedicated a significant amount of time to describing the differences between the original 82 edition and the 2003 revised edition. I naturally expected that when you'd get to The Stand, which I believe is the only other SK book to be published twice, you would also dedicate some time comparing and contrasting the original 1978 edition with the 1990 expanded edition, but you chose not to, unless you did an episode that I missed. Now, I can understand some of the reasons why you might have chosen not to. One, since 1990, the original edition of The Stand has been pretty much out of print, and most of today's generation probably hasn't even read it. The last time I saw a copy was at my town library about 17 years ago, and I'm sure they've probably updated since then. Two, just in general, most constant readers seem to have widely accepted the 1990 edition as the definitive version of the book. Whereas with The Gunslinger, there was some discussion over the changes, especially among longtime DT fans. A general consensus seems to have been reached that the 1990 edition of The Stand is the only and final version. Maybe you feel that there's no point in even having the discussion as this subject um, has decidedly been closed. So, Gabe, just to stop you there for a second, the, the reason that I didn't... Um, I guess it's it's two parts. One, you, you kind of touch upon it here. Um, I do believe that the 1990 is the definitive version of The Stand, but um, unlike The Gunslinger, um, with The Gunslinger, I read the original edition first, you know, and I had read it and reread it numerous times long before the 2003 edition um, of The Gunslinger came out. So for my rereading purposes, it's easy to delineate the changes and identify what the, the new parts are and what has been revised. With The Stand, um, The Stand was, uh, the, the first version of The Stand that I read was the 1990 version. So when I read the original edition of The Stand, um, I, I don't know, there had been so much, you know, there's all these hundreds of, of extra pages that I I was used to and 
and I've reread The Stand a couple times. I've only read the original edition once, I believe, but I've reread the 1990 version of The Stand. It's just that I, I wouldn't even know where to begin on, on, on tracking the changes from one to the next. Um, because with The Gunslinger, first of all, it's, it's a smaller book, um, and I was much more familiar with the original edition of The Gunslinger than the uh, um, revised edition. So I just had more familiarity with that than I did The Stand, and that's why I decided to just not do the original version of the stand. So Gabe continues, if I may weigh in, I do consider myself lucky to have gotten my chance to have read both versions and it was a great experience. Because I read the earlier version first, I have a soft spot for it. I th think it successfully tells us everything we need to follow the story and worked fine on its own. Of course, one can argue that the later edition enhances the story and gives us more character development, is better paced, or is the superior edition for various technical reasons, and all of these are valid arguments. Some will argue that the Bernie Wrightson illustrations alone are enough to make the later editions take the win. But I would argue, fully aware that I am wearing nostalgia goggles, um, she's grabbing the microphone right now, that the earlier edition was truly the work of a young writer still coming off Salem's lot in The Shining and finding himself a young man of the 70s remembering Vietnam and Watergate vividly felt to me more like raw Stephen King. To me, the later edition feels like the work of a more self-aware writer, conscious that he's becoming a brand name, taking the text of The Stand and putting, a more, putting it more in line with the voice of latter-day Stephen King novels, making it a little bit more flag-centric because flag's popularity as a character, updating cultural references just for the sake of updating them, throwing in a reference to Madonna or the late 80s slang, which only ends up dating the work further. Again, I can't really make the judgment call that one is superior to the other, but I can say that the one read first um, is the one that hit home the most for me. I know that you've already reviewed the book, but given the upcoming film adaptations by Josh Boone, maybe you'd like to spend some time discussing the changes to gear up for the film. Um, Gabe, it doesn't look like those adaptations are happening anymore, man. Um, Josh Boone has uh, switched gears and is going to be doing an adaptation of Revival. Um, and I think that that decision just doesn't, doesn't leave me with much confidence that a uh, stand is happening, especially seeing as how the selling point was Matthew McConaughey, who, when faced with the decision to stick with the stand or, or make the Dark Tower, he went with the Dark Tower. So I just don't see the stand happening. Gabe continues, on a final note, I just wanted to say that when it comes to examples where the movie is better than the book, both The Shining and The Green Mile happen to be on my list, so I was pleased to see that you agreed with me on both of these cases. Keep up the good work, and I remain your fan and constant listener, Gabe. Gabe, thank you for writing in, and anyone that hasn't written in and wants to, I mean, feel free to do so at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you haven't also done so, um, I'm close to 90 reviews on on iTunes, and I seem very selfish by saying this, but I really want to see if we can get to 100 here. So if you listen to the Stephen King cast and you haven't left a review on iTunes, um, it only takes a moment. Just a, a, a review and a rating will go a long way in establishing legitimacy and credibility for the, this podcast. Um, so if you haven't done so already, just take a couple minutes and write a review. I would greatly appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right. Uh, because this is an episode reviewing Stranger Things Episode 8, I'm going to get to my uh, review uh, by starting off with the Wikipedia summary so I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. Joyce and Hopper are detained in the Hawkins Laboratory and are interrogated by Brenner. Hopper gives up Eleven's location in exchange for neutrality and access to the gate. 
Joyce and Hopper enter in hazmat suits and discover the creature's nest, where they find Will unconscious with a slug-like creature in his esophagus. Nancy and Jonathan turn the buyer's home into a trap for the creature and cut their hands to attract it with their blood. As they wait, Steve unexpectedly arrives, intending to apologize to Jonathan about their fight. As the three argue, the monster attacks and Steve manages to trap it. Jonathan sets it on fire, injuring it, but it escapes back to the upside down. In the middle school, where Elle and the boys are hiding, Mike asks Elle to a school dance, then kisses her. Agents storm the school, but Elle crushes their brains, killing them. As Brenner recovers the weakened Elle, the monster enters, attacks Brenner, and then corners the children in the classroom. Elle pins it against the wall, and both vanish. Will is hospitalized and reunited with his mother, brother, and friends. As Hopper exits the hospital, a black car pulls up and he reluctantly gets in. At Christmas one month later, Nancy has gotten back together with Steve and both are friends with Jonathan, giving him a new camera for Christmas. Hopper leaves an office Christmas party with leftovers, which he leaves in the woods in a concealed box along with waffles like the ones Elle liked. Will and his friends have resumed their Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. After returning home to eat dinner with Joyce and Jonathan, Will excuses himself to wash his hands. In the bathroom, he coughs up a slug, briefly sees the world of the Upside Down, and returns to dinner. Review. Again, as we have before, we start with the stars and pan down to the Hawkins lab. Inside, Joyce is being held prisoner and is visited by a literally shadowy Brenner. In the conversation, Brenner reveals that six people have been taken by the monster through the course of the week. And the snake charmer tries to work his magic on Joyce, but she's not having it. I would have loved to have seen Brenner crack in this moment and go full evil. We don't get that. Hopefully in season two. And I'll get to this in a little bit, but even though it looks like Brenner dies, there's evidence that he might still be alive, which I'm hoping. Somewhere else in the facility, Hopper is getting tortured by the female agent. And he's revealing so much information, I worried that he was sealing his fate. And despite the fact that he's on the receiving end of a taser and soon to be a drug overdose at the hands of the agents, he's still in control. Without prompting, he offers them to a deal. The extent of this deal is never fully revealed, but one part is that the chief will give up 11 in exchange for heading into the Upside Down to go get Will. It's a shitty move on Hop's part. While I understand it, he's still throwing the girl under the bus. You can make the argument that she'll be able to take care of herself, but he's still offering up to the men and the women who imprisoned her. I assume that this guilt will form the thrust of his arc for the next season. As we see, season one leaves off with Hop leaving Egos for her to find, so he's doing what he can to atone. Combine this with the loss of his daughter, the Duffer brothers are teeing up a potentially great pseudo-father-daughter relationship with these two, and I can't wait to see how it develops. Mike realizes that Nancy and Jonathan have skedaddled to go monster hunting, and at the time, I didn't mind this. But now, in retrospect, with the adults having bailed on all of the kids and the teenager bailing on the middle schoolers, I've got some issues. The point of keeping the separate storylines apart from one another allowed these types of beats to go unchallenged, because if they hadn't discussed their portion of the story with the others, there's nothing keeping them uh, or stopping them from working together. However, now that they are working together, it feels false that they break up so quickly as they came together. And it seems highly irresponsible to leave the children alone when we know that A, 
there's a dangerous monster on the loose, and B, the government is after one of the children. The government that we know is responsible for the torturous experiments, children abduction, and the murder of at least one town resident. Back at the lab, Hopper and Brenner meet, and Hop strikes up his deal with the snake charmer. Joyce and Hop suit up and head into the bowels of the facility to enter the gate. Brenner thinks that he's gotten rid of his problem because he doesn't believe that they'll be returning from the Upside Down, and based on everything that he's seen, he's right to think that. My question here is, if the Upside Down is an alternate reality version of the world, then why, then when Joyce and Hopper walk through the portal, they're in the basement of the facility that we know can only be accessed by an elevator. So in their attempts to find Will and walk to the buyer's home, wouldn't they have to use the Upside Down elevator to get out? Now, how does that work? Is there electricity? As Joyce and Hop make their way through the Upside Down, we begin to get a series of increasingly depressing, depressing Hopper flashbacks to the loss of his daughter. And these scenes, guys, are so effective. They're just so sad. What I hope for in season two is that his daughter's death has nothing to do with MKUltra or the Hawkins lab. There's some online speculation that she's somehow involved, and I hope to God that that's not the case. In my opinion, that would diminish the tragedy and it would just warp Hopper's motivations moving forward. I don't need everything tied to the show's mythology. Back at uh, the buyer's house, Jonathan and Nancy get ready and cut themselves to draw the monster out. At the school, Dustin goes in search of pudding to recharge L, which provides a moment of him screaming that he's found the pudding. And guys, I can't stand this moment. I hate it. I didn't like it when I first saw it, and I didn't like it on the rewatch. It doesn't seem very Dustin to me. It seems like they've swapped him out for Chunk from the Goonies. That all of his sensitivity, thoughtfulness, and humor gets swapped out for some sort of over-exaggerated fat kid enthusiasm. I get it. Funny beat. Kids being funny. But this doesn't feel like the character that I just spent eight hours with. And I, I should also say that um, the, the Glenn Metzara, is that his name? The, the actor? I, I don't think he is fat. But I just think that they treated him in this moment with the same beat um, that your, your, your sort of typical fat kid um, in the group would, would uh, act like. At the buyer's home, as Jonathan and Nancy uh, begin to prepare for the arrival of the monster, Steve shows up from a completely different movie. And understandably, when he enters the house and sees how crazy it looks, he is baffled beyond belief. Even more baffled when his girlfriend produces a gun and points it at him. Steve has chosen the worst time to show up um, as at that moment, the lights begin blinking off and on, and to Steve's horror, the monster emerges from the ceiling. It's such a fun scene in which they run through the house, Steve screaming the entire time. As they try to lead it towards the trap, the monster reveals that it's intelligent to understand that's being toyed with. In the Upside Down, Hopper discovers an egg that looks very reminiscent of a facehugger egg. Now, what are we supposed to take away from this? That the monster hatched from this egg? that the monster is eating these eggs. I'm sure this will be explored in season two. For whatever reason, I don't know um, if, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what the deal is. I don't think that the monster came from the, the egg. I mean, because from what I gather from interviews, I don't think the monster is native to the Upside Down, which would mean that if the monster is not from the Upside Down, then it couldn't have come from the egg. 
As they explore the ruins of Castle Byers, Hopper finds a stuffed lion, which provides the trigger for a flashback to his dying daughter. It's the same stuffed lion um, of Eleven's that Hopper had seen in the Hawkins lab, and it's also the same stuffed lion that his daughter had in her hospital room. Like I said earlier, I hope that this isn't signifying that the daughter is connected to the experiments. I would find it completely unnecessary. Him needing to help Joyce so that she doesn't have to experience the horrific loss of a child, it's more than enough. Back at the buyer's home, they kick Steve out of the house, and as he made his way to his car for the first time, I was sure that Steve was going to get it. I thought that this was going to be the end of Steve. Inside the house, the lights start strobing, and the monster attacks. Jonathan is about to get his face taken off, and Nancy does her best by shooting at it, but thankfully, Steve makes the big, heroic turn by swooping in at the last minute and beating it with the baseball bat. He beats it back into the trap where they light it on fire before it disappears. In a cool sequence, Hopper and Joyce make their way through the buyer's house, and in the real world, as they walk through the hallway, we can see the Christmas lights blink, marking their progress. In the school, Mike and Eleven talk about the happy life they'll have with her living with him, leading to the big kiss, which all but seals her fate. Mike then discovers the army has arrived. Um, with just about 20 minutes left, anything can happen. The kids try to escape, but get boxed in. From the look of the faces and intensity of all the agents, the stakes here are nothing short um, of the lives of these children. When Dustin says Lando, Lando, meaning that someone had given them up, suddenly Lando isn't cute or funny anymore, and it makes Hopper's decision to sell out the kids that much worse. Unless explored properly in Season 2, this could wind up being a major problematic character beat. You could argue that Hopper would know that the kids could handle themselves, but think about that statement for a second. Even if that description is irresponsible at best, even if that were true, Hopper is incorrect in that assumption because even if he could predict that Eleven could handle herself, what he can't plan for is that after murdering a handful of agents, which also consider that, that he is forcing this young girl to murder people or not helping her, and in his not helping her and leaving her alone, she is forced to murder people. So um, after murdering a handful of agents, she collapses, and so she's weakened. And at the end, it's because of the deus ex monster showing up out of nowhere that saves the kids. When I watched this the first time, I was too caught up in the wonder of the show to think too much about what was going on. I was too in love with it. Now that I peer a bit closer, I see some of the blemishes beneath the makeup that I hadn't noticed the first time around. Now going back to Eleven's display of power here. She is badass in the moment, but it's not without its tragedy. While it's satisfying to see her crush the brains of those that would intend to kill them, including that bird of prey agent um, that ruthlessly executed Benny, it's horrible because we still have a little girl straight up murdering these people. And brutally, the best story for Eleven might be that she dies because how can she ever truly find peace with the amount of terrible crimes that she's been forced to commit due to events being out of her control? Hopper and Nancy walk the streets of the Silent Hill-inspired upside-down version of Hawkins, and it's magnificent. I love this look. Now I'm confused at what happens next. They're tracking the creature so it can lead them to Will, but at that moment the creature shows up at the school to attack the Hawkins folk. The upside-down building that Joyce and Hopper find themselves in doesn't look like the school. Maybe it is, and I'm incorrect. Um, 
So I don't really know where they are. What works for me, however, is the reunion between Eleven and her papa. I'm so fascinated with Matthew Modine's character. Does he actually have paternal feelings towards her, or is he just trying to reclaim an asset? He certainly does seem to have genuine feelings. It's a complex little moment, and you can see how vulnerable she becomes when she's around him. It's chilling in any context when a little girl struggles in the arms of an adult and says the bad word, or says the word bad. At that moment, the lights flicker, and they notice the blood. The monster pounds itself through the wall, and the scene quickly becomes a bloodbath. I should note that the Duffer brothers made the wise decision to constantly light the creature in either darkness or strobing light. The special effects can't hold up under direct light, and the strobe effects um, certainly, uh, and the strobe reflects the uncertainty that comes from story from a story dealing with two parallel realities. From the music cue, to the slow pan over the bloodied corpses, to the wall smashing outward, it's a masterful moment in the horror genre. The creature makes its way through the agents and pounces on Brenner. Because we don't see him get his due, I hope that he lives to terrorize another day. If he's dead, I won't argue it because I don't know how he could survive otherwise, um, so I'm not expecting him to come back for anything other than flashbacks. But if this is indeed his end, I feel like we'll have missed out on his gruesome demise. And personally, like I said earlier, I would love for him to return deadlier than ever, mangled and scarred, and out for a vengeance mission. In the upside down, in the upside down version of the library, I believe, they discover the gooed up corpses of the monster's victims in various stages of death. <sighs> now there's a skull, which raises the question of where that skull came from. If the monster has been abducting people for only a week and these victims are still intact, where, what does this skull tell us about this world? Here, they discover um, Will with a long snake-like thing down his throat. It's gross and it's awesome and they pull it out to reveal that it isn't just a tomb but a living creature which Hop quickly dispatches. In the school, Mike and Eleven unknowingly have a goodbye where they dream of a future that's not meant for them. The creature bursts through the door to go after the kids, which raises the question of why. Throughout the previous seven episodes, the monster hasn't shown an interest in finding Eleven. It has followed the scent of blood to take its victims back to the Upside Down. So with dozens of bodies to keep it occupied, why is it concerning itself with the kids other than because the plot requires a final showdown? Everything about this scene, I thought, was well done. The monster looks menacing. Uh, the bit with the wrist rocket moment is funny and it pays off the inclusion of this weapon from earlier in the season. And Eleven's sacrifice is met with grandeur, weight, and sadness. Because the show had not drawn any relationship between the monster and Eleven, it still leaves me feeling as though something is lacking. I understand she feels responsible for drawing the monster into this world and creating the gate, but those are unintentional actions. As Eleven sacrifices herself, we see, um... Hopper and Joyce uh, resuscitate Will while flashing back to the death of his daughter. It is a highly impactful scene, and it's hard to get through without me tearing up. From there, it's just clean up. Will awakens in our world. Everyone has a happy ending. When Hopper gets picked up by the man in the car, I wondered if in exchange for Will, he would offer himself up as a willing experiment, or that he'd just be shot. So when he shows up for the Christmas party, I was flabbergasted. We reveal that he's in the woods, leaving Egos for Eleven. And like I've said already, I look forward to their relationship next season. 
The kids make reference to the dangling plot lines during their next D&D campaign, which I thought was a nice little wink. But does knowledging excuse it? I guess that's up to the individual viewer. Nancy has chosen Steve, which a lot of people have taken issue with, but doesn't make any sense um, otherwise. I mean, the person that she saw beneath the asshole veneer has proven himself. Like I said earlier, his return to the house to save Nancy and Jonathan is one of the most heroic moments of the show. And I look forward to seeing what's next with the character. If she went with Jonathan, to me, it just, it just wouldn't feel natural. It wouldn't feel right. It would feel very forced. And lastly, we see that though Will has been rescued from the Upside Down, it doesn't mean he's been saved. He coughs out a slug, shades of the X-Files Fluke Man episode, and for a second he flashes to the Upside Down. The Duffer brothers have expressed that they will explore the idea that there are consequences for spending time in the Upside Down, and that Will was there for a week in a world that isn't designed to sustain human life. So what is the Upside Down really? Mr. Clark discussed multiple realities. What is wrong with this reality? What occurred there to make it that way? Was it the result of some alien invasion? What caused the tendrils? What's the egg? Why is it uninhabited? What are the snakes? Why is the monster there? Also, here's a question. Is the monster a previous experiment? After all, we met 11. That suggests that there are 10 more. Maybe this monster is a previous experiment that found the upside down and is being mutated by the properties of that world. Maybe that's what Will has to look forward to. A lot of questions, and that's a good thing. It's fertile ground to plant a new series season of stories. The Duffer brothers said they're continuing to look at the lives of these characters and have all of the answers on the monster, the Hawkins Lab, the Upside Down, the Black Space Mind World of Eleven. They said that they know Will's story when he was in the Upside Down but chose not to show his experience to craft the mystery. So we have characters who have been changed by season one, in some cases, maybe physiologically, and we have creators who have a guidebook where it can go. They've also stated that some time will pass, which will allow for the natural aging of the kids. Personally, I'd like to see summer life in Hawkins. I know I was more critical of the episode more than the other episodes, but it doesn't take away from the fact that Stranger Things was the best audiovisual experience for the summer of 2016. No movie was able to capture the buzz that this show deservedly generated. Will season two be able to recapture the experience? Probably not. So much of the joy in season one was the unexpectedness of it. Now the game has changed. These kids are stars. We have our theories and our expectations. Um, it's a tough position for the Duffer brothers to be in, but it's also a good position. Because with season one, they proved they were a force to be reckoned with. They have an opportunity here to solidify their talents. And I can't wait for what I assume will be um, summer of 2017 when Stranger Things season two returns. Okay, guys. So let's see. We are at 30 minutes. 31 minutes. Um, thanks for, for sticking this out. Um, I'm currently uh, holding holding my six-month-old, um, and, and she's being a very, very patient young lady, so I, I, I have to go spend some time with her now. I'm going to have to sign off. So here is what the Stephen King cast is going to look like or what could look like. Um, for months now, I've been saying that October would bring my review of Jonathan Madbury's The Pine Deep Trilogy, but um, but unfortunately, I, I got backlogged um, with work and, you know, fatherhood and, and my own writing that I, I wasn't able to devote as much time to rereading um, 
Dead Man's Song and Bad Moon Rising. So we're about to head into October at the end of this week, and I'm only halfway through Dead Man's Song, and I haven't even started reading, uh, rereading Bad Moon Rising. So my original goal was to have um, probably in the second week of um, October my review of of uh, Ghost Road Blues, and then the third week of October, I would do Dead Man's Song, and the fourth week of October, in the week of Halloween, I would review Bad Moon Rising. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like because I, I'm under the gun on this one. So I hope, I hope to have this all finished sometime in October. Um, if not, it, it might have to wait a little bit. I'm sorry, guys, because it's the perfect series of, of Halloween books. Um, but like I said, um, I've got other priorities now, but I, I'm, I'm hoping to get those done. Um, so there's just going to be a slight change of plans. They'll come. I just don't know when. Hopefully they'll be able to all come out in October. Um, if not, uh, I mean, we'll get them by, the, by uh, December 31st, which won't have the same effect, but uh, at least you'll get them. And if you guys have not read Jonathan Madbury's Pine Deep Trilogy, I strongly recommend it, seeing as how we are entering the, the Halloween season and uh, Stephen King has never given us the definitive Stephen King uh, Halloween experience. But uh, Jonathan Madbury, um, he, he definitely proves his mettle with, with this one. It's a fantastic uh, Castle Rock-like town with a very Halloween-themed uh, bent to it. Um, and it just has all of these nice... Uh, horror monsters that that uh, terrorize this town and and you guys will definitely enjoy it and I look forward to talking about it and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it in peak Halloween season so that's that's that so I won't be releasing any episodes until those episodes come out um, so I'm gonna put my my head down I'm gonna get through these books I, I have some stories that I'm writing on my own I'm kind of on a hot streak right now and I don't want to let up on that um, but uh, hopefully everything will be able to come together and uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.